Hey everyone, Tim Kay, host of the Veterans Project Podcast, here to talk to you about our summer 2021 raffle. Now, I get questions all the time about how folks can help the project. Well, here's your big chance. Thanks to our wonderful partners, we have a chance for you to not only help the project throughout this entire next year, but also you can win an incredible prize package in doing so. What if I told you that 50 bucks would grant you the opportunity to not only help the project, but also win a package valued at $45,000? That's right, 45000 bucks. What do I get, Tim? You get a custom Veterans Project Elite Outdoors 16-inch barrel AR-15 chambered in 223 Wild a Leupold Optics Rangefinder RX2800, and a scope as well. These are not bottom-of-the-barrel optics. These aren't just things Leupold Optics had cast aside and handed to us. These are top-of-the-line optics. Grizzly Forge, our friend Lucas O'Hara from Grizzly Forge, is providing us with one of his beautiful blades. Former Army sniper, he'll be on the podcast in the future. We are very thankful to him. We also have a blade from Ronin Tactics. So not one blade, but two blades. This one is from Spartan Blades, and it is a beautiful, beautiful piece. We also have a weapon case for your AR-15 from Pelican, the best in the industry. Uh, They have been an incredible sponsor for us. Pelican is offering one of their gun cases for your Elite Outdoors rifle. Now, the end of the raffle is September 1st, so don't wait around on this. It's a very limited time only, but you have a chance to not only help the project, but win an incredible package in doing so. Head over to thevetsproject.com backslash raffle for more information. Now, we'll provide the links in our description as well. And look, we know that times are tough. Money can be tight. If you don't have the $50 to spend, sharing this raffle helps us a ton. Again, that's thevetsproject.com backslash raffle. You can be a part of helping fund the work for the entire year. The Studies and Observation Group, also known as SOG or MACV-SOG, was a top-secret joint unconventional warfare task force created on 24th of January 1964 by the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a subsidiary command of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, or MACV. The unit would eventually consist primarily of personnel from the United States Army Special Forces, the United States Navy SEALs, the United States Air Force, the Central Intelligence Agency, and elements of the United States Marine Corps Force Reconnaissance Units. The mission of MACV-SOG was to execute an intensified program of harassment, diversion, political pressure, the capture of prisoners, physical destruction, acquisition of intelligence, generation of propaganda, and diversion of resources against the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Mike Stahl was one of those warriors, a special breed of soldiers selected to a highly classified organization that carried out missions behind enemy lines in some of the most remote locations in Southeast Asia. Mike's missions were so dangerous and so highly classified that had he been captured or killed, there would be no official public reports of his whereabouts, and the United States government would completely disavow itself from any knowledge of the aforementioned operations. Through this podcast, Stahl is giving an extremely rare insight into a world that few even know about. Like many Vietnam warriors, though, he would be abandoned in many ways by his own government, cast aside, and left unsupported after serving as one of our most elite. Mike shares his thoughts and feelings about his time after Vietnam and the difficulties of facing transition alone. 
It's so important that we recognize those first men who laid the foundation for our most elite units. And Saul offers us profound wisdom about those early days of what it meant to be serving in such a vital capacity. We will let Mike take it from here. We bring you part one of an education on Mag V. Sog with the one and only Mike Stahl. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim McKay. I'll be your host today. Uh, we're honored to have a legend here with us, uh, Mike Stahl, who is a Vietnam veteran, Mac V. Sog, Green Beret, and uh, certainly an incredible record, but we'll let him share those stories, and he shares them much better than I do, uh, but glad to have you here with us, Mike. Thank you. Uh, thanks for doing this, Tim. I'm very grateful. Uh, John from Global Recon mentioned you. I've co-hosted yeah. that podcast quite oh, a few times. You? Yeah, yeah, that was fun doing that. Yeah, it's good. You were on it with uh, Tulam as well, too, right? From yeah, Run yeah. Running Tactics. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I went to his his uh, retirement ceremony. That's what Ruthie jo- yeah, said. John yeah, John hooked me up. That's awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Well, uh, Mike, it's it's an honor to have you here. Of course, we want to talk about all your experiences in Vietnam. Yes, but, you know, we wanna we want to talk about you know, your life earlier and what led up to that. Sure. So do you mind kind of talking about how you grew up and what led your path into the army? Uh, I had a very strange childhood, actually. Uh, I'm the youngest of seven kids, but I was raised as an only child. Uh, When I was born, my oldest sister already had two kids. Uh, I was a a big surprise to my parents. my mom was 42 in 1945 when I was born. Wow. And in, in that year when a woman was that old, uh, the old wives' tales, what they believed at the time was I had to be born an idiot. You know, I mean, really, that's, <laughs> really? that's yeah. what people thought. Uh, my mom used to talk about being, you know, at the... Uh, her doctor's office and all the young girls sitting in there looking at her. Uh, so anyway... Uh, my family was pretty much out of the house by the time I was born. My oldest siblings were twins, and they were 11 years older than me. Wow. So uh, so like I say, I was the youngest of seven, but raised as an only child. Um, so that explains all the nieces and nephews that yeah, are your yes, age. Yes, that were older. my age. I, my nieces and nephews were my, my uh, siblings, so to speak. Wow. Uh, and my oldest sister treated me as one of her kids when I was over there. Uh, so I, I grew up in that strange setting in Bradenton, Florida, which was a very small town then. Um, right now, I understand it's got a population of about a million. But when I was a kid there, right on the beach, uh, there was a population of about 13,000 in the summertime. And then when the snowbirds had come down in the winter, there was like 30,000 people there. That's still blowing up hugely oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah. but, but uh, very bucolic life. I mean, go to the beach, just an idyllic childhood. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you remember about your parents? Uh, I didn't have a good relationship with my dad uh, at all. Uh, but my, I was a mama's boy. Uh, spent, my dad worked very hard. 
they were Germans, I mean, German ancestry, and my dad had that emotional distancing that Germans had. So, so I mean, we never played ball, never did really anything with my dad, so I didn't have a good relationship with him. Uh, and uh, he died when I was 16 of cancer. Oh, wow. So, uh, but the, what ha- when I was growing up right after World War II, all the movies, there were television about World War II, the big picture, Victory at Sea, uh, a lot of the actual movies that came out had to do with Audie Murphy, World, you know, the Medal of Honor winner, Sergeant York, World War I. Uh, so I grew up very patriotic, really. Uh, and it might have been because my family was German, <laughs> you know, because during World War II, uh, my bro- I got pictures of my brother, uh, brothers, uh, they found finding tires, rubber, everything was, uh, rationed. Right. And I've got an old picture of them when they were like 13, uh, being honored for turning in rubber, they tires they'd found along the road. But I, I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, like the television would sign off at midnight and they play the national anthem and show the flag. If I would, I would be in bed. If I was awake, I would get out of bed and stand at attention and salute. If I heard that wow. when I was a kid, uh, same thing at the end. My dad watched a lot of baseball, and they do. If if I at that age, I was very patriotic. You don't uh, hear about that nowadays. That's pretty uh, well. No, no. I, but I mean, it was, but it was that World War II veterans. That whole thing. I mean, they they the greatest generation. There was still a lot of respect for them if you know and uh as there is today and they deserved it of course uh the other thing was that my brothers being uh 11 years older than than i was uh my brother dan one of the twins uh enlisted in the national guard when he was 16 because they didn't check the records so closely then he volunteered active duty and he became a member of the 187th Regimental Combat Team in Korea. Wow. I uh, have no idea what he did there. He didn't talk to me a lot about it unless he was drunk when he mm. got home. Uh, but I can remember uh, him coming home on leave, those sharp khakis, wearing the jump boots, the wings, that whole nine yards. And I must have been impressed as hell. <laughs> and I can remember when he left, uh, I had my little piggy bank with my coins and stuff in it i uh, put put all of that money in a sock and hid it into his duffel bag before he left (laughs) wow and uh the other thing was that really influenced me i I was a good student in school i should say that if i wanted to be you know i i was the kind of guy in high school that would get five a's and an f you know if i didn't like a class if i didn't feel like it was really worth worrying about i didn't do any work and I was a band nerd going through school. Uh, I thought I was going to be a high school band t- leader when I when I graduated from college. I have no idea how I thought I was ever going to go to college, but you know those were my goals. There was another another thing that influenced me. Uh, some people are familiar with Sea Hunt. Lloyd Bridges did the the program with because uh, he's got kids that are actors now. Uh, he was a scuba diver and he saved people every week doing his uh, scuba stuff. There was also a program on television, it was called Ripcord, hmm. that dealt with early skydiving. There was two guys that jumped out of planes to save people, and my brother was airborne, so 
I, I mean, I, at that, as a young age, I wanted to jump out of airplanes. Uh, I had some problems my junior year in high school, dropped, didn't go back my senior year, and uh, doing some odd jobs, bagging groceries, working as a carpenter's helper, that sort of thing. And we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And being in Florida, that was really close to home. Uh, just north of us, uh, over Tampa Bay, was McNeil Air Force Base, which was a SAC base at that time. And it was also the beginning of the Cold War, uh, the, the, the nuclear threat. So there, we were learning all about Conrad and, and uh, what to, you know, that dumb shit they, uh, maybe I can't no, say No, no, you're okay, yeah. That, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> that, that dumb stuff they taught us, you know, if you see the bright, bright, bright flash get under your desk like that was going to save us. <laughs> I, can, I can remember being so angry with my father because he wouldn't build a fallout shelter for, the, for me and my mom. And I talked to him about it. He said, if anything happens, just go in the closet. <laughs> So, and, pretty and, much accept your you death. Know, yeah. And, yeah, and and uh, on a regular basis, B fifty twos flew over the house at a very low altitude. Uh, but anyway, Cuban Missile Crisis that was really close to home for me, and uh, so I went down and checked on enlistment. I was seventeen. Uh, it was end of November. I would have turned eighteen in January, and I en- ended up enlisting airborne infantry. Uh, my mom signed for me, and I actually thought I was going to be fighting Russians in Cuba. I mean, it was, <laughs> and uh, even when I was inducted down in Coral Gables near Miami, at that time, the 82nd was down there in fatigues. Mm. And that was a time when a soldier was not seen off base without Class A's. Wow. I mean, the first drive throughs were invented near Fort Bragg, so guys in fatigues could get something to eat on their way home. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that drive-thrus came around. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. you know that's kind of where the idea came from because when I was in, if you left base in fatigues, you could not go into a restaurant, you could not go into a Seven Eleven until you went home and changed into your civvies. You could if you were in Class A's. Mm. And I kind of think we should have we should have kept that tradition up. Yeah. I hate seeing troops on the street in fatigues. It looks too military. It looks too too combative yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, you I know, think there's an attention to detail there too that uh, that a lot of us have lost. Abs- absolutely, you know that that Class that, A's always have to look good. Oh yeah, that that was the thing, and you know if guy had decorations and stuff like that, it was, and also at that time through those years, we got to fl- fly standby if we were in Class A's half price standby any airline would take us so uh nice. so uh, i mean even when i retired in uh it was retired in 71 that was still going on yeah. uh so anyway i you know i listened when i was 17 i went was inducted down at coral gables actually went up to fort jackson on a steam train <laughs> <laughs> not not a diesel an old steam locomotive wow they uh we traveled up to fort jackson uh south carolina where they broke us up uh we got our shots our basic issue and stuff like that and then i went with a group down to fort gordon georgia uh for basic training mm, okay. and i was in an all airborne volunteer company uh from there uh, at the end of that, I couldn't pass the airborne physical yet because I enlisted as a, as a uh, I call it a 98-pound weakening. I think I weighed about 111, 115 pounds. 
but I put on a lot of bulk by the time I got out with the regular meals and exercise. I graduated, I got out of basic at 145, uh, went through infantry IT, AIT there at Fort Gordon. Then I went to jump school, uh, where I was a Mr. Airborne, by the way. You know wow, what I didn't a Mr. Know. Airborne no, is? No, I don't even know what that okay. is, but it sounds great. My brother Dan, who was really the influence, uh-huh. had this tattoo, okay. which uh, is a duck with jump boots, mm-hmm. and there's a little parachute coming out of his ass, and underneath <laughs> it, it says, who me? Uh <laughs> Wow. And I was in, I got a couple of tattoos already before I, I got out of AIT, but I was in uh, in town. I can never remember the name of the town outside of Fort Gordon. Uh, they'll come to me after you leave. Yeah, I can't, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, you know, we were hitting the tattoo parlors. I was smart enough to not get drunk until after, uh, and there was a lot of bars that would service even though we were underage right but i didn't start drinking until after i got my tattoos <laughs> smart uh, <laughs> i could tell most you most guys so- drink before <laughs> yeah i could tell you stories there too but uh i was in a tattoo parlor and saw this tattoo at that time it was a lot different than today they used acetate uh and the the tattoo was etched into the acetate they would put uh charcoal on that and put that on your arm to get the outline and that's what they would color you know make the the dark lines with and then they filled it in but i i saw it up there i said i gotta have that tattoo that's the one my brother had so i had that tattoo and a tattoo when i went to jump school mm-hmm. of course we did pt stripped to the waist so i'm doing pt we're out there doing jumping jacks or whatever the army daily does and and uh, the instructors are called black hats they walk around with black hats they're walking around kicking guys in the butt harassing them whatever and this black hat walks up next to me and he's kind of i can't remember exactly but he kind of made a signal and started hollering and all these black hats surrounded me he said we got a mr airborne here uh, I had no idea what they were talking about. The guy in front of me also, he had a pair of wings tattooed, actual jump wings tattooed on his oh lower gosh. arm. So he was a Mr. Airborne. And the idea was, any, anybody that was different, anybody that came in TDY, seemed from the 82nd, decided to go to jump school. So they're waiting, wearing an 82nd patch. Uh, officers caught hell. And you got to remember the whole goal in jump school was to get you to quit. Right. That's what it was all about. Because the training was a snap. There was nothing to it, particularly. I mean, some of it was tougher than others, but it's not really hard to jump out of an airplane. And with the conditioning, the the training you get, you just naturally, when somebody says go, you jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- there was a lot of harassment involved to get you to quit. Uh, for example, we my class started out almost 1,000, and we graduated just over 300. Wow. Uh, because a lot of guys there for the wrong reason. They wanted the jump wings to look sharp. Mm-hmm. They wanted that 55 bucks a month extra pay. They didn't have the motivation really to, you know, to, to stick it out. Mike, I think it's fair to say wh- what you're saying right now. I think it's fair to say that being airborne was far different back then than now because now i mean really it's just a it's it's not that it's not easy it's not that it's easy nowadays but it's they want to get you through for sure yeah well well, now it's sort of a thing you you know every even the air air force you couldn't get airborne 
in the Air Force. Nobody in the Air Force, unless they had been in the Army before. Now everybody's wearing jump wings. Right. And I've only recently heard the term three jump chump. <laughs> Where guys get their wings instead of R five, and you right. know one had to be a combat jump, yeah. the rest were Hollywood jumps. But uh, but anyway, with this Mister Airborne, I got the, the the notice real quick that because I had this Airborne tattoo before I got my jump wings, they were going to make sure I didn't graduate. That was the whole goal. So the thing wow. was, anytime we heard somebody holler out Mister Airborne, where are you? We had to raise our hands, say, here, Sergeant, and drop for 20. If we were in harness, we did 20 deep knee bends. Uh, Their favorite, any time during training, they were constantly doing that. But the favorite time was after we did the Army Daily Dozen, we'd go out for for a three-mile run in platoons. We'd be moving along. Mr. Airborne, where are you? Fall out, do 20 push-ups, catch up with your platoon. As soon as you catch up, Mr. Airborne, where are you? and and that was a lot more stress, I can assure you, to the point of the guy in front of me tried to show up at formation. Every week had different instructors, you know, in PCNM week, physical conditioning and motivation. Then you went to ground week, different black hats. So you had to be rediscovered every week. Wow. Uh, the second week that we were there, the guy in front of me, he tried to put a bandage on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> didn't work Did not didn't work, work. Uh, he had already distinguished himself yeah uh, well like I say nobody knew he was a Mr. Airborne from the week before but oh, the black cats okay. were tuned in to somebody having yeah, I'm sure they'd seen that trick before <laughs> oh yeah they knew it they knew all the tricks uh, I just went, I just hoped that they wouldn't catch me you know once you once you got through PT and put your uh, feel, your jacket back on a fatigue jacket, then you were clean. You know, nobody's going to catch you. You could get through the rest of the day. So I think they caught me on a Thursday that week, finally. You know, of course, every morning you're sweating it out. When are they going to get me? Uh, it was, uh, let's see, it was in Tower Week when they caught me. They had me down in the front lean and rest. And every time you ca- they catch you, all the black hats are around you. It's like they're ganging up on you. So they got me in the front lean and rest, and one of the guys says, uh, soldier or shithead or whatever, (laughs) why'd you get that tattoo? And I told him, I said, because my brother had this tattoo, and I I wanted to be like my brother. I don't remember the exact words. And he asked me, uh, well, who was your brother with? You know, kind of checking me. And I said, well, he was with the 187th Regimental Combat Team in Korea. Uh, They were well known from Korea. That was, a, you know, kind of the crack outfit there. And they asked me a couple more questions. And once they verified that my brother had been in the 187th, they left me alone after that. Wow. Uh, so That's so I, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, that, that the respect they gave me for wanting to be airborne like my brother. And, of course, they knew I was a kid. You know, I was just had just turned 18. So, yeah. so I think they cut me some slack. But I got my wings. Uh, they were looking for volunteers to go to rigor school, so I went to rigor school then. And but it, you know, the whole thing of enlisting was behind the patriotism. World War II. I wanted to serve my country. My brothers had served. Uh, my oldest brother had served in the Merchant Marine in World War uh, II, which wow. a lot of people didn't realize. I mean, he was on the Liberty ships 
traveling back and forth in the Atlantic, and then he was traveling in the Pacific. Those are the boats that the U-boats were trying to sink. They weren't after the battleships or the cruisers or whatever the Navy had. They weren't after the escorts. They were after the ships my brother was on. Uh, and they didn't get VA benefits until after 2000. Jeez, wow. Okay. <laughs> so your brother never saw those, or did he? he no, no. He never he, saw them. I mean, they had VA benefits while he was still alive. But, I mean, God, I don't know how long. He must I don't even know what my brother was. We He was living in Boston, and I grew up in Florida. But uh, he, like I say, he was in World War II, so he would have been he in his 20s then because I think he started out building the Liberty ships, and then he and my brother-in-law to be enlisted into the Merchant Marine. But anyway, I mean, there was a lot of patriotism there. So I got through rigor school. I got a really cherry assignment at the Defense General Supply Center, as a PFC, it was an E6 slot. Uh, just a really nice job, eight to five, like a civilian. Uh, at, uh, it's outside of Richmond. It's it's still a supply depot, but now it's all air items. Excuse me. At that time, uh, it was Army. Uh, we stored all the cargo par- parachutes there uh, for a second drop, the 82nd or the 101st. They had enough cargo chutes to j- get them in once. That's what they kept uh, for their T-O-N-E. If there had to be resupplies, we had warehouses full of cargo parachutes packed. Uh, Our main job was inspecting new air items to accept them for the government, parachutes and that sort of thing. Uh, Give you a good reason why we needed to do that. We had a shipment of several thousand uh, T-10 parachutes. I don't know what they jumped today, but it was the old T-10. Coming from Pioneer Parachute Company, they were reserves, T-10 reserves. And there's, if you need to pull a reserve, you've got a complete malfunction, no parachute above you. The idea is a man can pull no more than 40 pounds in the way you pull a reserve handle out. So that handle is in a pocket with a spring on it. The handle can't fall out. Obviously, that would be dangerous, but it can't be too hard to pull. So we would pack up these brand-new reserves, uh, put them on the edge of a table with the reserve handle pointing down, and then we would hang weights on that, and that handle had to come out between whatever and 40 pounds. We got this shipment in that you couldn't get the handle out of the reserve packet couldn't get it out uh it was so tight uh so that's the kind of thing we had to catch yeah uh they actually at that for that load so many of them were bad that they sent a crew from uh i think it was in arizona where pioneer parachute company was arizona new mexico they sent their crew to richmond virginia to uh take all that tacking out and repair all those parachutes so we had a really important job but it was the kind of thing you would expect a, a senior NCO that had been rigging for 100 years to get. Uh, there was uh, no, no, what, the base had 3,000 civilians, 200 officers, and 30 enlisted men. So there were no barracks, there was no mess hall. So we had to live off base. We got rats not available. Instead of normal rations and no mess hall, instead of 30 bucks a month, we got 70 something bucks a month. And we got housing, you know. Uh, and so we got there as PFCs, and that's pretty unusual for a PFC to have to live off base. Uh, but it shows what kind of a job it was. 
<clears throat> Sounds like a pretty sweet gig. Oh, yeah. Because but a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility. Uh, it didn't matter if you were at E7. Uh, like I said, it was an E6 slot. We had, we had, uh, we had E6s, E7s mostly. Uh, most of us made E5 while we were there. We got promoted rather rapidly. Uh, but everybody worked. You know, it didn't matter if you, if you had three rockers, two or one. Everybody did the same job. And so we'd also, we had to inspect parachutes in the warehouses. The cargo parachutes had to be inspected and inventoried regularly and had to be repacked every 365 days. So, I mean, when you go out that, do that, any of that hard work, it wasn't like you had NCOs making privates do it. We all worked together. Uh, so the mentorship was really good. Uh, mm-hmm. I think at the most we had was 12 guys in the detachment. It was the Airborne Equipment Detachment. And uh, so like I say, and I got my, uh, the NCOIC, Sergeant Glenn, he was a Master Sergeant E7 from the old rank system after World War II. Uh, he was a skydiver, so I learned to skydive under him. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's listening and knows anything about licensing for the United States Parachute Association. Uh, You have licenses A, B, C, and D, going from novice to expert. He had D8, and the numbers as you get your licenses are sequential, so the first D license issued was D1. He had D8. Wow. Uh, When I got my D D license, it was 2228, so I was the 2,228th guy in the United States to get an expert license. Uh, I went jumping again in 2011. I made a dozen jumps in Canyon City. Uh, now the numbers are like up into the thousands. It's been so long. Wow. Uh, so uh, learned to skydive, became an avid skydiver. And Sergeant Glenn had had jumped in combat. Uh, yeah, uh, Glenn had been in World War II, served with the 82nd. Uh, it was possible with, uh, with the various jumps, Normandy and Holland, Italy, it was possible for one paratrooper to make four of those combat jumps and Glenn made them all. Jeez. Uh, for a combat jump, you get a, a little bronze star in your jump wings and they're re- referred to as mustard stains now, a new term, but he had four combat jumps on his uh master jump wings <laughs> uh he was also a pathfinder and i mean he had done it all good mentor absolutely and he really took me under his wing which again you could do i mean when we were working he was the he was the the boss but right. when we went out skydiving we were all just skydivers and in the military skydiving was uh it was really strange because you know, I, I've jumped with a lot of captains, jumped with a lieutenant commander in the Navy. Everybody's on a first-name basis, and the guy that has the, the highest rank skydiving is actually in charge. I mean, everybody's treated with respect, but there's none of this yes, sir, no, sir, and saluting. I mean, you're all just skydivers. Right. Uh, so anyway, I, I was hoping to get an assignment in Germany when I re-enlisted, but there were no slots. So I volunteered for language school mm. and uh, asked for German, French, or Italian, tried to get me to Europe, and uh, I was accepted for a 47-week course in Arabic. 
not what you were asking for. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I wasn't even sure where they spoke Arabic at that time. Yeah. It's like it wasn't really in the news. What what would that have been? Sixty. Well, I I, I reenlisted in November of sixty sixty five, and was in language school in sixty six. Yeah. So uh, so it wasn't really even on the map as far as like today. Uh, yeah, and nowadays you'd be the most valuable guy. Oh, oh yeah, Arabic linguist today is it, I'm sure is uh, although they don't I understand uh, when they first opened up the the new embassy in Iraq in Baghdad, that brand new big embassy, they actually had three people there that spoke Arabic. Jeez. Every everybody else was using Arab translators oh my gosh and uh, you can imagine if you don't have anybody there that actually speaks the native language you don't know what your native your indig translator is saying to you (laughs) (laughs) which got us in a lot of trouble i I am sure uh unfortunately i never got to serve where they spoke arabic uh but uh while I was in Arabic language training there at uh, Monterey, California, Defense Language Institute, West Coast Branch, I was very active in skydiving at the Fort Ord Sport Parachute Club. Uh, because of my experience, I'd also become a civilian parachute rigger with an FAA license uh, for parachuting. And uh, Special Forces, most of what Special Forces do is training. They're special ops, but our real mission is to train other troops. Uh, so it turns out that, that I have a natural ability for instruction. Mm-hmm. So while I was there the first time, I became I ended up being elected the club president. I was the club training officer. Uh, I was the club rigger. <laughs> and I became the club safety officer. Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. And one of the students that came in was the uh, Special Forces recruiter, uh, really great guy, uh, Mike McPherson. Uh, so we called him Mac. He was also called Babyface because he, he, he looked like he was about 17 years old. Uh, he was a nom vet, had run SOG. Uh, and he and uh, we had another guy in the club from the first, spe- first Special Forces group out of uh, – Fort Lewis, and they also had part of their group was in Okinawa. Uh, he was in the club, and both of them kind of pushed me into becoming going volunteering for special forces. Uh, I didn't want to go. Uh, my attitude about special forces at the time was the myth of the, you know kind of the Rambo hand to hand combat. I knew I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. My hand to hand combat was judo in basic where we actually learned to fall and slap the ground. I mean, there was <laughs> no real hand-to-hand combat to speak of. Right. And uh, there were there were stories about the bear pit where they'd put six guys in a hole in the ground and the last man standing got to go through special forces training. <laughs> and, and I'm not a fighter. Yeah. Uh, never have been. Never been in a fight in my life. Never mm. fought anybody in high school. Never had a bar fight. Uh, getting hit in the face over some girl just didn't seem mm-hmm. to be the brightest thing to do. So I, I learned to talk my way out of most fights. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just didn't feel like I was Special Forces material. But uh, those two guys talked me into, you know, at least taking the test. And 
they wheedled me into going to Fort Bragg. I volunteered and was accepted. Uh, the, the, the tests you take at that time to get into special forces were mind-boggling. Uh, they were developed by the Rand Corporation to weed out certain things and to find other qualities. Uh, you know, you needed a certain intelligence. Uh, we had to have, didn't have to go through OCS, but we had to have a score high enough on the OCS to be able to go to OCS. Uh, but the tests were just, the psychological tests were just mind-blowing. And that was the first thing that happened when we got to Fort Bragg, more of those tests. Mm. And as an example, I can remember one of the tests at Fort Bragg they gave us was we'd listen to a tape that would run for quite a while that would set up a situation. You're an airline pilot flying over the Pacific Ocean. And you got an island over here that's so many miles out, and you got all these circumstances, and your engine goes out, some mechanical problem. And then there would be like 15 possible things to do, you know, fly to this island or ditch in the ocean. Can't remember them all now. After they played the tape, then you opened your test book, and these 15 options were there, and you had to rate them 1 to 15, best to worst. <laughs> Best to worst, <laughs> okay, and that's the kind of test, you know. And there were there were tests where you would look down at a photograph or a, a drawing of, say, a farm, and then you would see a picture, and you would have to tell what that was a picture of and where that picture was taken from. Uh, so, so a lot of, I mean, again, they're weeding out. And looking for people with creative problem-solving skills, you had to be fairly intelligent. Uh, you had to be a team player, but also be able to work independently. And interesting enough for special forces, you had to have a healthy contempt for regulations. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, I mean, they're looking for this kind of thing. Uh, my recruiter wanted me to be a medic, and Special Forces medics are awesome, going through 47 weeks of training. Oh, yeah. uh, those guys can do open-heart surgery if mm -hmm. they're pressed to do it. They can pull teeth. Uh, I have a few friends that are those. Yeah, they are very smart. Yeah. Experts in tropical diseases. The guys got back from Vietnam, knew more about tropical diseases than the doctors here, and they became very valuable. Uh, so that, that was kind of the... Uh, they weren't the gun toter so much, but they were the most valuable man on the team. In Vietnam, they mostly did uh, what we called medcaps, medical civil civil affairs patrols, where we'd go into town and they'd take care of the indige. They'd pull teeth, they'd birth babies. <laughs> I mean, anything that that the indige needed. And then they worked in our dispensary. They oversaw. We had Vietnamese nurses, but when we'd get wounded and that sort of thing. You know, they were the, the leads on that. Uh, they were t basically doctors that hadn't been through medical school. Wow. Uh, but I just couldn't see myself as a medic. I mean, the blood and guts thing just did not appeal to me. And actually, none of the other MOSs appealed to me. Uh, I couldn't have been a radio guy f for love nor money. I mean, I, I could have <laughs> never done Morse code the way a special forces guy has to do it. I didn't see myself as a weapons guy in uh, basic training. Uh, I couldn't hit the inside of a room with a weapon. I mean, I just was not a marksman. I mean, the whole thing, 
demo guy. None of it really appealed to me. Uh, but when I got to Bragg, it didn't matter. When I got to Smoke Bomb Hill, which is the, was the training area for Special Forces, they told me I was going to be a junior intel sergeant. So I got to go through the operations and intelligence training, which was awesome. Mm. It was really excellent training. I mean, you, we, learn, we, we learned the operations phase of it, which was planning operations. Uh, the first part of it was like a, a, a quick review of basic training because we had guys coming in from all MOSs. I was a parachute rigger. And, and of course, with my language, I became a, a translator interpreter. Uh, so it was sort of kind of that review. And then the training went into training others and, and, and working missions uh, far beyond what you do in normal infantry. The intel training was the most interesting because uh, there was no doubt in mind that it was right out of CIA lesson plans, mm. uh, the stuff that we learned there. Uh, I'm sure it's very archaic for today. A lot of that stuff would still be, but but our training was was designed not so much for Vietnam, but to go into Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, the 10 Special Forces uh, was was looking after Europe. Uh, they had a company at Batolls. They had a detachment in uh, in Old Berlin when it was divided called Det A, which was which is also one of the the best or, or most unique uh, areas to serve in special forces. The, the, the debt A people are known like Mac V. Sog because they did, they actually did behind the curtain stuff, mm. you know, and, and uh, I've heard all kinds of rumors about what they did. I can't verify, but I understand like there was, uh, they'd taken suitcase bombs, Mm, you know the suitcase nukes and plant them in places where they thought the russians might come through wow as well as uh i mean we got the training on how to follow people i mean how to run a spy network how to set it up uh, how to make a drop and a dead drop and all of that stuff so that was i mean kind of james bond stuff which was pretty cool is that a kind of akin to what people know now as like delta force and cag and, no no you know, delta force delta force actually came out of the unit i was in in sog okay gotcha. okay and yeah. delta force is made up of special forces uh delta force they'll actually retire a guy put him in delta force as a civilian and then after he gets out of delta force put him back on active duty. Mm, okay. uh, Delta Force, you can have SEALs in there, you can have CIA agents, uh, right. and they actually they do the really... I know that's the case now, but yeah. I was wondering about then, uh, what that uh, kind of... Dead A, uh, like I say, really super spook stuff. Mm, okay. And uh, they have... I don't even know if there's any guys alive from Dead A now. Yeah. Uh, I had a good friend that became the uh, team leader uh of uh, debt a and actually wanted me as an intel sergeant we're kind of sidebarring here jumping ahead but uh that's okay after i finished my german language training and i didn't get orders for germany uh they were going to send me to fort uh fort devons massachusetts where the bulk of the 10th was i'd come out of vietnam and i didn't want to be that close to the flagpole Mm -hmm. so i volunteered to go back to vietnam uh, interesting, there was uh, Mrs. Alexander, we called her Mrs. A, worked in the Pentagon. She did all the special forces assignments. 
every SF guy had her phone number in his wallet. Wow. And uh, as soon as I got my orders, Fort Devens, Massachusetts, I went to the closest phone. I called Mrs. A, Mrs. A and asked to be reassigned a special f- to Vietnam. No problem, you know. And, and uh, later, one of my friends talked to Mrs. A. He went up to the Pentagon to see her. And she was talking to him about how great it was to work with special forces because she seldom had to make the decision who went to Vietnam. She had so many volunteers. Wow. You know, that, that she didn't have to pick the name out of the hat who was going to go over there. That's cool. But uh, but then I ran into uh, Bob Charette. I had went through German language training with him. He was special forces in E-7, trained him to skydive, so we got to be pretty good buddies, and he kind of learned a lot about me. Hooked up with him years after Vietnam, found out where he was, and called him and talked to him on the phone. He said, you dumb son of a bitch. (laughs) He said, he told me he got, he got to, uh, to the Bat Tolls, where he became the, the team leader for Dead A. He called up Mrs. A, said he knew this guy, Sergeant Stahl, that he wanted as his intel sergeant, gave, him, gave her the details to be, be told that I was already on my way back to Vietnam. Oh. <laughs> so if I hadn't screwed with my own destiny, I could have got my assignment to Germany, and I actually could have got into debt A. So you got to be careful what you wish for. It's what you talked about earlier when we were talking about that butterfly effect. Yeah, butterfly effect. Yeah, you Absolutely. stayed at the cafe for the coffee yeah. a little too long. So, uh, so uh, after graduation, you go to Vietnam, directly to Vietnam, do not pass goal, and uh, went into Cameron Bay, took us up to Nha Trang, uh, I think we we're at Cameron three days where they taught us how to brush our teeth. Uh, that was important in Vietnam. We got the whole, I mean, it was kind of weird. Uh, and we also got our Vietnam issue at Cameron Bay. Uh, probably choppered us up to uh, Nha Trang was where 5th Group headquarters were and had a formation there. And they told us we'd be there about three days before we got our assignment and they could ship us out. Uh, but we were restricted to uh, the group headquarters compound there because we were new in country and they didn't want us going into Natrang and getting into trouble before we, you know, got our wings, so to speak. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, me and two other guys started talking. Two other guys and me started talking. <laughs> and uh, we didn't really go to Vietnam to hang around the compound, it seemed. And we got we were sitting where we could see the front gate, which is wide open, and they had uh, Vietnamese guards, uh, CIDG, Civilian and Ir- Civilian Irregular Defense Group, called them SIG. Uh, they were the guys on guard, and other guys were just walking in and out. It was obviously nobody was checking passes or anything like that. So the three of us went AWOL the first day we were in Vietnam, <laughs> uh, the first night anyway. But it was going to be, okay, we're going to stay together no matter what, and we're just going to go in a little ways into Natrang, find the first bar, and have a couple of bombay bars, the mm. 33 beer that was uh, had formaldehyde in it as part of the uh, the process of the oh formaldehyde. And it's a French recipe, and that was the big thing to drink over there for anybody who could get in there, bombay bar, 33 beer. So... Uh, so, of course, we went in, we found the bar we wanted to get into, and uh, 
we uh, had a little too much bamui ba and <laughs> and got the PX girls there. How do I do air quotes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they know now. <laughs> they, yeah, they, yeah. The uh, the girls had come up and uh, want to sit on your lap, and you buy them Saigon tea, which was tea. Uh, meanwhile, they're getting you to drink more alcohol and get, trying to get you to go home with them, which we did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Make that clear, you did. Yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, that was very interesting. While we were walking in, it was funny. I was in the m- middle. And one, one of my, I don't even know who they are. The two guys I hooked up with were on each side. And the uh, little Vietnamese kids, the boys are coming out and, uh, you know, trying to sell their sisters. Oh, wow. Now, a sad thing in a combat zone is, especially for the for Asians in particular, in general, but Vietnamese are very modest people. Mm-hmm. Uh, very modest. But when the economy goes to a war economy and... In that situation, the only way that families could be fed, a lot of families could be fed if the girls prostituted. Wow. It wasn't that they wanted to, that they had low morals. They were pushed into it by the war. Mm. And so their brothers would pimp for them, their little brothers. So they'd come out, sister number one, cherry girl, this kind of stuff, and pull on your arms and stuff. (laughs) Well, uh... The guy on my uh, left soon discovered his watch was gone. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder they didn't want us to leave the compound. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, do you want me to tell this part? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we're we're pretty wasted. We're all young guys, and and uh, we had done a lot of drinking, but not much. So it was easy for us to get kind of loopy. And these girls got prettier and prettier the whole time we were there. Uh, so we decided to go home with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have what they called cyclos, which were three, three-wheeled. three guy in the back had like a bicycle. In the front, it was two wheels. And it, two people could sit there. It was like their taxis. Right. Uh, so we went out front with the three girls just before curfew, because it was a curfew. Everybody had to be off the streets. And my two buds got in one of the sicklos, and the girls were telling them where to go. And I got in my sicklo by myself, and my girl told the guy where to go. So we are heading out, and also we make a turn, and we're, it's getting dark now. And, and the smells are god-awful when you first get there. They, they cooked with something called nookbom, which was fish sauce. Mm. And just when they cooked with it, it was rancid. The tobacco they smoked was disgusting, the smell of it. And so I'm riding along following the, the two guys in front because we had sworn we would not split up, you know. Right. So, and we're making turns and going this way and that, and it's dark, and there's Vietnamese along the side of the road with their little cooking fires. I'm starting to wonder, even in my inebriated condition, if this was the brightest thing to do. Well few minutes down the road or whatever uh the cyclo in the front makes a right turn my guy keeps going straight mm, well. and we're supposed to be going to the same place so i started at turning around say you know where you're going and i started asking him and he would say yeah yeah so okay and uh we kept going i talked to him again yeah yeah I didn't learn till many months later that ya in Vietnamese is is a, 
means I'm listening to you. Uh-oh. Doesn't mean I know what the heck you're saying. <laughs> It's it's like an American going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So he spoke no English, and I spoke v- no Vietnamese. And I did have my Arabic, but that wasn't, that wasn't, doing, much, that wasn't doing me much good. Uh, not too many camel drivers in, in Vietnam. Nope. So he eventually pulls up in front of this house, and I get out, and I go knock on the door, and this girl answers. It wasn't my girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but it turns out, that she was that kind of girl. So I spent the night with with her, uh, spent the whole night with my eyes open, thinking I was going to get my throat slit. Interesting enough, when I got out of the house in the morning, I had no idea where I was. And, but I was special forces and I had a reasonably good sense of direction. And I found my way back to the, back to the highway and uh, that morning, I got back, back to the fifth group headquarters in time for Reveille. Wow. So that healthy disregard for, <laughs> for Army regulations, it was like, it's not what you do in life that counts, it's what you get caught at. Right. <laughs> That's pretty much the motto for the Army, period, and then definitely special operations. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I got assigned to C Company up in I-Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, spent three days there. I went out to an A team. I was on A102, which was the team that got run out of the Ashow. If anybody's familiar with the A teams that got overrun, the A camps. Ashow was a real bad battle where uh, I think it was uh, two of the companies, I think it was Ashow that two of the companies were actually VC on the inside of the wire, uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, but anyway, that was the team I joined, and they had moved to a, a little ville called Tinfook. Uh, you can imagine what we called that. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> but, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but I got there as a junior intel sergeant, which meant I was supposed to insist, assist the real intel sergeant, who would have been an E7, a sergeant first class. L- let me ask you real quick. Sure. What was the environment like when you got there? Because those guys had obviously experienced some pretty traumatic combat. Uh, well, my team sergeant had come out of the Ashow. But everybody else hadn't. They had joined the team after that. One of the bad things in Vietnam is we didn't have team cohesion, Mm -hmm. just like the other units. I mean, some units went over as a unit and stayed together. Uh, But even if they'd been a while, you got people de-roasting, leaving country, and people coming in. So you started getting the... the, We didn't use the term then. I never used it, but the FNGs, Mm -hmm. the newbies, the fucking new guys. Mm Uh, special forces, when I got there, I was treated like I'd been there forever. There was no, you know, you're a new guy, uh, no hazing, no hazing, nothing like that. It was strictly professional, even though I had just come out of training group and I was a buck sergeant. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'd been in the army four years, but a lot of these guys like, like, uh, uh, Leland Harris top, our team sergeant, he was in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. So we're talking wow. about, you know, an early guy in Special Forces when that was first formed after Korea. Uh, Fair to say he'd seen some combat. Uh, my God, yes. And we never even knew that then. I didn't, under, I didn't know what his background was until I met him after Vietnam. We got together. Wow. And uh, at that time, I mean, he was 
last time I saw him, he was wearing a, a baseball cap, and he had more pins on that for the units he was with. Uh, he had been in the 187th, could have very well known my brother wow. in Korea. So, uh, But when I got there, there was no intel sergeant. That guy had already de-roast. Uh, the first night, they, they put me in the ammo bunker. They didn't even have a room for me yet. And it was like uh, just... I, I, it's like I'd been on the team forever, but you know, forever. Except that everybody was looking out for me, showing me what to do and how to get my gear together. That's uh, a pretty special feeling to come into that kind of environment. Oh, absolutely! Matter. You know, to be accepted like that for with guys. I mean, just coming out of training group, our instructors in in training group, some of them were pretty messed up. Uh, my platoon sergeant. Uh, uh, the right side of his head, he didn't have an ear and had severe severe burns, and he only wow. had uh, he had one finger on his right hand, uh, and he wore a brace that was a hook. He wore a thing on his arm that had a hook and a straight piece that he could use that one finger to press against to pick things up. Wow. Uh, the the story was he was about to throw a, a Willie Peat, a watt phosphorus for grenade when a round hit it went off oh in his gosh. hand wow. yeah yeah any anybody that's been in the military can picture that yeah those incendiary grenades don't respond well to that no no that white phosphorus i mean we had tr trained on what to do with white phosphorus burns uh the pain he must have gone through was unbelievable we're not even allowed to carry it anymore well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a dangerous, you know. A lot, a lot of the things we used in Nam, like like flamethrowers and napalm, uh, are now considered bad. Right. <laughs> uh, which I always found interesting that people try to take the brutality out of warfare. Yeah. I mean, I find that interesting too. I'm glad you made that point because it's like, what what do we call? I think we had this discussion with some younger Green Berets too from Afghanistan. They were talking about, you know, killing is killing. Yes. Like you're still killing somebody. Yeah. That's the most brutal action you can take. Yeah. And the whole goal of warfare is to demoralize the enemy. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, being napalmed, I, I've been almost napalmed. I've had to use napalm. Napalm saved my ass once on a mission. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible weapon, but it's a psychological weapon. And warfare is psychological. People don't realize that. It's like when they, they were trying to develop all these non-lethal weapons and they develop weapons that don't make any noise. That's no good in warfare. Right. It's the noise of warfare that scares the hell out of the enemy. <laughs> if you're too quiet in general, you're never going to win a war. That's true. So, so this concept, I mean, yeah, you can go too far. You know, I wasn't into torture and all that, but that's different than being on the battlefield. Right. And, and, the, and the other thing is, too, is the, the enemy's not paying attention to any of those rules. Oh, no, no. That's the other side of it that... That, you know, we were not signatures to the Geneva Convention, but we followed those rules right. at the time. Uh, and I don't know why we were never signatures to it, but, but, uh, but you know, things like, like the cluster bombs. I can see why they don't want to use those, because those bombs are going off for the next 50 years after the war's over and killing people or maiming them. Uh, but, but napalm and that sort of thing, flamethrowers... 
terror weapons for sure. Yeah. And uh, again, I'll say it: you can't take brutality out of warfare. It's it'll if ne- it, it'll never be a fun thing. Well, I guess they did with the video games. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I, I mean, so, so any, anyway, I don't. But is a psychological? Uh, you know, it, it is an Iwo Jima. You know, that's uh, the flamethrower was. Yes, m- most people said that's why the Marines yeah. took that island. Yeah, clearing out bunkers, and I can remember training films in Basic where they showed that stuff. Yeah. You know that we got the stuff civilians didn't get to see, but seeing it, seeing the guys come out of the bunkers on fire and that sort of stuff, and. Uh, you know, and you need to see that kind of stuff. You need to learn that in basic how brutal warfare can be. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, a- anyway, you know, I got there and uh, uh, it was kind of strange because the uh, first night I was in that, it was our ammo bunker and also st- stored our extra medical supplies. Uh, they had one room in there with a bunk in it. So, that's where I bunked. Uh, the first night I was there, I saw a bow constrictor. Oh, I would have been out on that. And <laughs> shoot at was, me, no snakes. It was leaving my room when oh, I saw it. Gosh. And and uh, you know, the next morning when I was down at the team house, I said, "Did I see a snake in there?" He's, "Oh yeah, that's Bob the boa." <laughs> <laughs> well, hell, you could have told me that that that, that was going to be my roomie. <laughs> true snake eaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little too true. <laughs> I cannot handle snakes, man. <laughs> that would have been uh, no matter what their first name is. Yeah, right? I don't care. Yeah. Black snake. Bob, Mike, whatever. <laughs> Black snake, rattlesnake. Yeah, not my not, friend. Not, not my friend. Yeah. Uh, I, I once gave a talk uh, in front of uh, American history class. It was a, uh, a charter school in Ohio. And I'd been invited in to, to share my experiences in Vietnam that would be appropriate for, for uh, I think they were like, 10th or 11th grade, I don't remember exactly now. But uh, I mentioned something about the snakes there because we had the boas and, you know, the python. They were pythons actually there and uh, had the bamboo pit viper, which we called, depending on where you were, they called it a three-step or a five-step. They were small like a coral snake, but if they bit you, that was about as far as you were going to get was three to five steps. Uh, if it got bit on the hand, the best thing you could do was cut your hand off. Jeez. What's <laughs> oh. that? That movie Saw? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. If uh, the enemy doesn't kill you, the jungle will, yeah, right? And, yeah, uh, you know, and, uh, and I talked about the tigers. We had a recon team once was stalked by tigers, mm. by a tiger. And uh, wow. that can make you nervous if you're the tail gunner, you know. You, you, you can't make any noise. You can't shoot them because then Charlie would know where you are. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't outrun them. But, uh, Major, remember I was telling you about Major James Capers, his, uh, the Marine recon officer, first yeah. black Marine recon officer. They got stalked by a tiger, <laughs> and they had to stop on point. He had no idea where they were stopped, and the point man was like, the reason I stopped is we almost all got mauled. <laughs> he had no idea. Yeah. He was like, I'm glad I didn't yeah. know. But, but the funny thing about that class was, once I mentioned that, that's all they wanted to hear. The tiger. About. After that, the tigers and the snakes and and the leeches, of course, were there in big time too. Yeah. Uh, damn elephant leeches could get three inches long; they could drain a body. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so that that's what they got into. But but going back, you know, to, to getting at the A team, uh, the next day they, I got in a different room. But 
But there was no intel sergeant to brief me in. Uh, Top took me up to our talk, which had been an old French defensive position that the CBs had put a roof on. Uh, it was block and concrete. Must have been the walls. Must have been three foot thick. Wow. Uh, but that's where the tactical operations center, the talk, and where a lot of the guys lived there. There were rooms in there. Uh, the very center was our commo bunker, and there was a concrete wall around it that must have been two foot thick and then there was like a three foot uh aisle three foot aisle hallway that went around in a circle and there were rooms off of that and then there was an open space there that, that had been set up for the intel sergeant and so i had a map that you know i went in there and, and top says well there's your map and there's your safe this is the combination of course there was a uh, uh incendiary round in in the safe that you know, that you'd have to use if you got overrun right. and uh, said, go to work. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to intelligence. Well, welcome to Intel. Uh, I went, I got to meet my counterpart in, in Vietnam, special forces running with CIDG had no authority, no power. Mm, okay. uh, we were advisors to the Luc Long Duc Biet, which were the Vietnamese special forces, uh, of course, that got shortened to LLDB, which got turned into little lousy, dirty bastards. <laughs> Are you saying they weren't competent? <laughs> uh, most of them, not so much. Yeah. I mean, we had some good, good soldiers we worked with, but it was almost a political thing. It, yeah. I mean, I think it started out where it was kind of a, a train. They were actually kind of real special forces. But then it got to be a, a political thing, and you really couldn't trust them that far. It sounds very similar to Iraq. Yeah. Like, it, we had a few good, but you yeah. would not. I remember I had a yeah. guy alongside me who was, you know, who I, I, I literally would tell, hey, stop standing off to my side. Yeah. You need to stand in front of me. Like, <laughs> that, that kind of trust level, you yeah. know, where, like, I, I didn't have it. Yeah. And, you know, but working, you know, working off of that, you were talking, I heard a lot of good things about the Montagnards. Did you, oh, the Mon did you, yeah. you work with them at all? Oh, <laughs> yeah, you got the bracelet on. <laughs> I, yeah, these didn't come from Vietnam. These came from uh, the Montagnards in Fort Bragg, right. near Fort Bragg. come, yeah. After Back. that. Uh, yeah, when I ran recon, my second tour, uh, my team was Mountain Yards. Oh, wow. Those guys would die for you. That's awesome. Those guys, I mean, the whole, people need to learn about the Mountain Yards. Mm -hmm. uh, the Vietnamese hated them. You talk about racial prejudice. Really? Uh, in Vietnam, you had the v Vietnamese, you had Nungs, which were uh, Chinese Vietnamese. They were they were the shopkeepers. I mean, and then, and then there were the Mountain Yards, the mountain people, which were analogous to our Native Americans. Mm. They were all the same but different. Really? If wow. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. They were matriarchal. Mm. Uh, the, the moms ran everything, including, I mean, the men. Uh, they drank a lot. They had the rice wine, which was uh, kind of disgusting, the fact that it was one of those things the women chewed and spit. There's, oh, wow. there's other cultures that make their alcohol that way. They, the chewing the enzymes from the saliva act on the rice, however the hell they make it, and they drink it through out of out of crocs through long straws. And so it's almost like drinking some kind of spit form. 
Oh my god! Yeah, uh, they called it rice wine, but it was wow. more of a whiskey. Oh, okay. Okay, it, and it had a kick to it. Yeah. Uh, but it was part of their rituals, and Vietnamese mountain yards stayed drunk most of the time on that. Mm-hmm. Very peaceful people. They're the ones that use the crossbows. You might have heard about. Yeah. Uh, the the Vietnamese referred to them uh, in a term that that was essentially monkeys without tails. Jeez. Uh, wow. Uh, and there was a lot of friction. They were not allowed to own property. They were not allowed to be part of the army, of Vietnamese army. They were not allowed to be part of the political system. They were not allowed uh, hardly to associate with the Vietnamese. Wow. Uh, and like I said, there was tribe. They were up the mountain people. That's French for mountain yard. And uh, there were the Bru, the Rade, the Gerade, like we have the Sioux and the... And the uh, Apache. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one had their own little language and their own customs, but again, they had their similar traits. So different uh, tribes amongst the Monyards. Yes. Know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, depending on on where you were regionally. Right. Uh, sadly enough, after we abandoned the Vietnamese, uh, and we had you know we had promised the Mountainyards we would look after them forever. We had that relationship. After we were forced to abandon the Vietnamese in the mountain yards, the North Vietnamese wiped out gen- genocide most of the mountain yards using sarin gas. Jeez, wow. They, and uh, the ones that escaped and the ones we were able to get out of Vietnam, those are the mountain yards that now live outside of Fort Bragg. Right. Uh, and uh, hearing some of the stories there is very interesting on how they survived, but they're still looked after by the special forces. Mm, wow. Anyways, I got you off on a rabbit trail there, but it was <laughs> yeah. just such a fascinating thing to me because that that uh, that culture is very uh, important to me, and I'd read up on it a lot. Yeah. So I just wondered, you know, I knew that the A teams yeah. worked a lot with them, so I wondered. yeah, uh, uh, yeah. In some in some areas, actually, depending on where the A teams were, they would have mountain yard companies. Okay, uh, but I, my my A team. Uh, was all Vietnamese. Okay. Okay. And then, like I was saying, we had the Look Long Duck Viet. Uh, when we'd go out on operations, our normal operations were two SFers, two Look Long Duck Viet, and a company of CIDG, the SIG. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't well armed. Uh, of course, the Special Forces guys and the Vietnamese Special Forces carried the M16s. But our mountain yards carried M1 or M2 carbines from World War II, wow. uh, which uh, was 30 caliber, but had no punch to it. Mm. And against an AK, it didn't have the range. Uh, the M1 carbine was not semi-automatic. I mean, it was, you know, it was semi-automatic, and the M2 was automatic. Uh, but you couldn't hardly kill anything with it, mm. uh, which uh, my last mission, we went in to try to catch a prisoner. I actually carried the M1 carbine with a scope on it and a suppressor uh, with the idea to shoot a Vietnamese you know, NVA with that because you can't shoot a guy with an M16 and hope to get him out. I mean, mm. the M16, the 5.56 round is too devastating. You can hit a guy in the arm and kill him. Yeah. You know, whereas the... Uh, and we're in recon. We always carried a uh, high standard 22 suppressed 
uh, in case we had a chance to take a prisoner. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. You see, so you don't want too much stopping power because you want the ability yeah, to take you got, him. Yeah, you got to wound him, take yeah. him down without killing Man, him. Man, wow. Yeah. And so, uh, so going back to my first tour, uh, our value when we were on operation was that they could not get air support or medevac from Americans without American on the radio. So... So the thing was, as long as you had value to them, they were going to keep you around. But if stuff t- started turning south, they could chew hoy. I mean, they could give up surrender and turn VC oh, and wow. just turn us in. Oh, man. Uh, when I first got there, okay, the next day, the whole point of this is they, they took me down to, to meet my counterpart. The, the Vietnamese intel sergeant, I walk up to him, had my interpreter, had we had the interpreter there. Uh, his name was Tom. We called him Tom. Uh, that's how I talked. I, I spoke Arabic, but no Vietnamese. <laughs> uh, didn't speak a word of Vietnamese then. And uh, so I'm meeting my counterpart. This guy's 110 years old, had fought with the Viet Minh against the French. Oh, my gosh. And I'm his I'm his advisor. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so of course Americans are very arrogant when we go overseas. We think we're better than everybody, and that's a very sad thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was really bad in Vietnam because there's a great prejudice against the Asian in general. One of the reasons we had so much trouble in World War II was our generals didn't think the Japanese were smart as they were right they weren't going to be a formidable opponent because they were japanese and there was that same attitude about the vietnamese mm. uh, so uh this guy like i'm saying uh had fought the french he'd been around forever and i'm going to be his advisor <laughs> so through the interpreter i told him uh, i can't remember what his name is now but he was a trung si, a sergeant you know trung si fought or whatever uh, look at you know I, i'm supposed to be your advisor but we both know you know a hell of a lot more about this than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, you tell me what you need, I'll get it for you. Wow. Uh, right away, I had built good rapport with this guy. It's huge. Huge rapport. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, the next day, he took me into the Ville and bought me lunch. Wow. Which was my first experience with Vietnamese food. It was a thatched, you know, thatched hooch, yeah. hooch a dirt floor. A uh, piece of mink hanging on the wall. God only knows what it was, covered with flies. <laughs> and uh, he fed me a Vietnamese meal. Uh, don't have to go through all of it, but at the end of it, you fix this thing like a burrito together with a with a rice cake instead of a tortilla. And then he dipped it in some sauce and took a big bite. And I was doing. He, he pretended to speak no English. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Didn't have an interpreter there with him. He'd, I'd gone in there by myself with him. Yeah. So I was doing everything he was doing. So I dipped it in that sauce and took a big bite. I was not into hot food at that time. <laughs> uh, any idea how hot Chinese red peppers are? <laughs> That's what all those little red rings were floating around in that nook mom, the fish sauce. Oh, my gosh. I mean, my my mouth was on fire. My eyes were watering. And this guy was just rolling on the floor. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I mean, that's how you don't go in there arrogant telling these right. people you're going to save their country. You go in there and say, I'm going to do everything I can to help you save the country. Right. And everything we did, even when I became the, the civil affairs NCO, 
we didn't we got the rice but we didn't distribute it mm. the vietnamese it came from the vietnamese government the vietnamese did everything with the, with the civilians we didn't want any of that credit we were trying to build support for the south vietnamese mm. government and i think that's where a lot of that a lot of that respect comes from when it comes to green berets you know you're the first iteration of that and yeah. so many people know that silent professional and yeah. that's where that comes from that humility that you showed in vietnam and, and just the fact that at that time uh, special forces uh never patted themselves on the back uh you know i'm it's kind of sad with what's what went on with iraq and afghanistan with the seals yeah because they were supposed to be silent professionals too and they're the guys that came back and wrote the books and made the movies uh and where that wasn't the thing with special forces. Mm. Uh, I, I think I know two good movies about special forces, and that's the one John Wayne made, mm -hmm. uh, which was as true as it could have been because it was based on Robin's Moore book, The Green Berets, which is where we got the name. Right, yeah. And, and that's a whole study in itself. But John Wayne made that movie. First part of it, uh, A107 was Trabong. Hmm. Uh, that was an A-team in Vietnam, and everything they did was very realistic. And then the second part of that movie was more the special ops side. Right. Of course, the big problem was it's like Star Trek. The captain never beams down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the captain stays on the ship. Full colonel does not go out into right. the field, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But John Wayne, of course, had to be John Wayne and, <laughs> yeah. and lead everything. Yeah. Uh, interesting enough, the first time I saw that movie was in Da Nang at an outdoor, on base, outdoor theater with Vietnamese watching a movie about Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> They loved it. They loved it. Yeah. They didn't understand a word of what was said, but they loved it. And, and I loved the movie because you, if you really watch it, you can tell a lot of it was filmed at Fort Bragg because there's the big water towers in the back. One scene, you can see an army bus drive by. <laughs> and then and then at the end, it was very interesting when, when the Duke walks out onto the beach with the little kid, uh, Hop Joe or whatever his name was. <laughs> And they're talking as the sun goes down over the South Pacific, yeah. And which uh, the beach of Da Nang actually faces sunrise, not sunset. <laughs> but not they, exactly they, historically accurate. Yeah, I yeah. think they filmed that part in California or something. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, the other movie is Twelve Strong. Mm, yeah. That uh, yeah. in in uh, Afghanistan, which yeah. uh, which I kind of proud of too, because that was the fifth special forces. Yeah, yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah, yeah. A awesome movie, well done, and uh, best I can tell, everything seemed like it should have been. You know, it was realistic to me. Right, yeah. Nothing was. Oh God, they wouldn't do that. It wasn't a lot of Hollywood into it. Yeah. As opposed to Lone Survivor. I mean, I haven't talked to a guy yet that said, what the hell? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I mean, you, yeah. that whole movie, you know, arguing about things. What do they do? And I mean, I'm thinking, God, special force. What are these guys doing? You know, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's the team leader. He makes the decision. I would talk over things with the guys, 
But when I was in charge, I made the decision. And once I made the decision, everybody shut up. There was no rivalry or anything like that. When, you know, like when Lone Survivor first yeah, started. the back and forth. Yeah. You know, pretty that, ridiculous. You know, and, and then the falling down 18 miles of cliffs and getting up and the weapon still works. <laughs> <laughs> One thing well, after, weapons barely worked before you hit that <laughs> yeah, rock. <laughs> right. So, so I mean, so, I mean, that to me seemed really Hollywooded up yeah. as well as the fact they couldn't get Camo. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you, in Vietnam, we had facts, you know, we, we used radios that had very short range, but we had aircraft up there relaying. These guys got satellite comm and all this <laughs> stuff and they can't talk to each other. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I mean, that just seemed Man, if this is the way they're running the war, no wonder we're in so much trouble. Yeah. So we're all off, <laughs> off topic here. But when yeah. it comes to movies, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, no, I love hearing your perspective on that because you, I mean, if anyone gets the respect, you get that respect for yeah. being one of the initial guys. And, and, and the 5th Special Forces was the only Special Forces group that was forged in warfare where the whole group was involved because the 5th was put together just for Vietnam, that's why the fifth flash had the Vietnamese flag on it. Mm, wow. Which sidebar, after Vietnam, they took that flag off. Wow. And the fifth uh, is based at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, right. not at Bragg. I went to the reunion there, and they were wearing just a black mm. flash. And I thought, what the hell? Are they in mourning? Yeah. And, and it was like, like removing the Vietnam tradition away from the fifth now he, they, they've gone back to the old flash now that's good yeah. because and I, i'm glad you said that because there is so much prestige with fifth group but yes. nowadays when you talk about fifth group it's very different I like they're not one of the groups that you think of when you, i mean of course you think of all special forces groups as special yeah but like you know seventh group gets a lot of attention sure. and you know and obviously you know they work in central america and yeah. now they do now and the tenth group at carson right. now yeah but fifth group doesn't get talked about very yeah. much and I, you got to think that erasing some of that history for a yeah. period of time probably did that well it's bad enough that the civilians erased that whole 10 years yeah and i understand that there was was the vietnam war and the protest, you know, a after Walter Cronkite, who had been supporting the war, he was the big, he was the trusted journalist mm -hmm. who was in Vietnam all the time. Got pictures of him flying in spads. He was a big hawk until Tet, when he decided we lost Tet. Yeah. And he turned against us and the nation turned against Jeez, us. Jeez, yeah. Uh, so there were some minor protests, but you had that crap going on. You that shows to, you how important the media is. Oh, absolutely. And the importance of the difference between filtered media coming out of World War II and unfiltered media coming out of Vietnam. Right. Civilians should not be shown the brutality of war. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I agree. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, but... but and, and there were things like... Uh, I remember when I was in language school, before I went to Vietnam, talking to a guy and... Uh, some journalist talking to an army guy published the fact that the reason the VC couldn't shoot down airplanes is they hadn't learned to lead them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So actually the NVA got a lot of their intel out of our newspapers. Jeez. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, journalists should be there. I have no problem with that, mm -hmm. but there should be some censorship 
freedom of press is important. You know, I believe in the First Amendment, mm -hmm. but some things, reason we have class, you know, we have security classifications is because some things just shouldn't be general information. Yeah, but, I, I heard a story from a UDT guy that said that he was taking a time journalist in and they wanted to show him the villages and he showed one of the villages to the time reporter and it was all burned out and he was like, you want to know who did that? And he told the time reporter and the time reporter said, yeah, sure, tell me. He's like, it was, it was us, wasn't it? And he was like, no, it wasn't us. It was their own people. And the time reporter didn't write the piece. Yeah. Uh Another aside, <laughs> we're going to have a lot of these. No, I like it, yeah. Uh, one of the big things near the end of the war, there was a picture published, you may have seen it, little girl running down the road naked with napalm burns, mm -hmm. with a big village in the back being yes. napalmed. That was blamed on Americans. It wasn't. Mm, <laughs> okay? Wow. Yeah. Two years ago, Vietnam Veterans Day, mm -hmm. National News announced that Okay, today is Vietnam Veterans Day, like they, you know, that little lip service they give, because it hadn't been around that long. You know the picture they showed? That little girl running down the street naked with the napalm burns yeah. for Vietnam Veterans Day. But as I was talking about, you know, that 10-year that period of Vietnam, there were the racial riots here. There were assassinations so that whole 10 years was just bad for the country. So it was a race. They don't even teach that hardly in, in American history classes. No, yeah. That's why a couple of times I've been invited to American history classes by more enlightened instructors to come in and talk about Vietnam a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Some of these kids are probably hearing it for the first time, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The, and, I mean, it's, it's like, like two sentences i don't know in history books and of course you know i'm very liberal progressive but li the liberals that write textbooks i'm sorry <laughs> uh they have a, have a tendency to slant it. it it's it's like textbooks anywhere when i was in high school uh, junior high school our american history teacher had just come down from up north someplace and we had Southern textbooks that were picked out by the Southern school boards. We were going along just fine until we got to the Civil War. Mm. And he said, all right, class, I don't want anybody to read this chapter on the Civil War. This is all wrong. I'll teach you about the wow. Civil War. Because the Southern textbooks were different than the Northern textbooks. Right, yeah. So, so, so there was a textbook once published in Texas hit the news that said the Korean War was ended by the first dropping of atomic bomb. Oh my gosh! And it wasn't nobody noticed it until the teachers actually using the textbook got to that part Jeez. of the book. Wow. So you got to be not everything you hear in school is on is the is truth. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, we were talking about we were going through that first tour and kind of yeah, what that was yeah. for you. Well, when I got there, when I got my briefing, they told me first of all they told me be careful because it was a two hundred dollar bounty on Green Berets. Mm -hmm. Don't know if it was true or if they just told me that to make me keep my head down. But it made me keep my head down, in spite of the fact that many of us thought the beret made us bulletproof, which. <laughs> <laughs> which was wishful thinking yeah. obviously didn't work yeah. uh but but uh i mean those are the kind of attitudes you kind of have to have to to get through that situation but my briefing was in the 10 foot area there were three vc they were all women 
They had one old French Garand rifle that they couldn't get ammo for anymore. It was, I don't know even what caliber it was, but the story was that if they could get 30 caliber, like for an army Garand, a 30 caliber ammo, they could hit, take a rock and crimp that just a little bit to get it to chamber. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and the way that special forces camps were set up, uh, points of interdiction, places where the VC or NVA might come through, uh, or that you know the, the uh, pacification program to 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 keep the VC suppressed in an area. So we'd have an A camp, and for a, for a, a a couple of miles circle around that, there was called a safe area, and then outside that was the free fire zone. The safe area, we would we try to encourage the people out farther to move into the safe area because we wanted to deny the VC the resources. You know, the people out there farming their rice, you know, they were available for labor, you know, for the VC moving things through the area, which was very, actually, they were very nice to those people. They would come into an area, they would round up all the men, say, okay, you're going to carry this stuff four miles. Mm. So they would be used as pack animals to get the supplies the next four miles. They'd let them go home, and then they would get another group. And I'm I'm not giving accurate numbers here, but you get the drift. Right. So the idea of bringing the the South Vietnamese into the safe area was to deny VC the resources out there. They weren't supposed to be growing rice, all of that stuff. There was two problems with getting them in. If they came into the safe area, by the way, the safe area just meant it was safe for the VC because nobody could be shot there mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you were being attacked. But that was so, you know, it was a safe area in the sense that that was a no fire zone right. where outside they were subject to being bombed or shot at any time. Uh, but the two problems there, if they came into the safe area, it was a small area around a village that already all that property was already owned by the people there. And this property had been handed down for generations, family to family to family. Mm. So you're asking them, it would be like asking a farmer here who, is, who his farm or, or ranch had been in the family for 18 generations to just abandon that land and move into New York City. Okay. Wow, yeah. Not okay. going to go over so well. It's not going to go over so well. The other thing was that the South Vietnamese government had a law that if any land were abandoned, it became the property of the South Vietnamese government. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So these people knew if they left their land, they'd never get it back. Mm. So we're asking them to go into an area where they have no way no way to earn a nickel to subside, subsist. So we had to set up civil affairs situation where we delivered them rice and pans and clothes so they became wards of the state so to speak oh my gosh uh so in vietnam i'm pretty sure it's probably happened in iraq and afghanistan we did a pretty good job of turning loyal south vietnamese into vc and nba (laughs) okay just by the way we treated them right yeah Uh, young pilots would old guy be out there uh, in his rice paddy you know on his water buffalo plowing or whatever these young hot shot chopper pilots would buzz them and spook the water buffaloes 
I mean, I, I uh, once followed a uh, convoy of Marines through Dogpatch. Dogpatch was a refugee area outside of Da Nang. Mm-hmm. Uh, old hooches, I mean, just a very dilapidated area. Uh, all Marines in that area is following a convoy, deuce and a half in front of me, a two and a half ton truck with, with uh, Marines in the back. Every time it would stop, they would throw candy out to the kids. Good. Yeah. Kids would run up to get the candy. Then the Marines would spit on them. Oh, jeez. The most insulting thing you can do to an Asian is spit on them. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sitting there saying, these dumb people. Yeah. If these these kids weren't Vietnamese, weren't VC this morning, they will be in the afternoon. Wow. And we had a guy in my outfit that was a civil affairs NCO that used to fly into the camps bringing supplies. He loved kids. We had the, the, the uh, tropical chocolate that was terrible. You know, it was all white, and it was designed to last in heat and it was from world war ii uh so we got a lot of that plus he would uh have his family send him candy mm-hmm. just to distribute to the kids so when they were unloading whatever bird he had brought supplies in, he'd always have a little gaggle of kids around him handing out candy uh some little kid six seven years old pulled the pin on a hand grenade and dropped it into his pocket of his jungle for nate teagues and blew him in half oh my gosh uh so uh that kind of warps your brain you know we hear about me and we don't know how can you kill civilians how yeah. can you shoot children when you're in a and i'm i'm betting you had kind of had the, mm-hmm. those same things in in iraq and afghanistan where where Americans turn people against us because of our naivete and our ignorance, mm-hmm. not understanding their culture. We insult people, not intending to, but Americans have a tendency to insult people anyway or to just be obnoxious as hell. The Ugly American, an excellent novel, was written about that. Mm. I read that novel on one of my trips to <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, but... Uh, this kind of thing, you know, is, is is very tragic. Yeah. But we didn't have anything going on at Tin Foot. Mm. Uh, but then uh, before Tet, coming up into uh, the Christmas time, you know, Tet was in February of 68, uh, the Tet Offensive, coming up to that was where we started making some serious contact. Mm. Uh, I had... I had was out on two operations myself uh, where I ran into battalions. Oh, my gosh. And this is, this is with 100 irregulars, basically National Guard mercenaries, uh, two Vietnamese advisors, and two Americans running into 500 NVA, not VC. And, of course, the, v, the NV, North Vietnam was swearing to God that they had no troops in you know South Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, big surprise, they were lying. <laughs> uh, but the, I mean, it was the first one. Yeah, the first one, uh, we uh, we took a patrol into an area we hadn't been in before. We had a couple extra days. We got back early. Uh, I was with uh, our new intel sergeant, Sergeant Beals, had come in and it was one of his first operations. I was taking him out. You know, it's like an old guy would 
take a new guy out and to break him in. Right seat, left seat, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so basically, uh, special forces, especially at that time, worked experience over rank. Mm. You know, and and we we weren't rank conscious anyway. Right. You know, because you, you just can't be rank conscious when you got a twelve man team that has to work together. There can't be a lot of I'm the I'm the you know, I'm the <laughs> master sergeant and you're you're the corporal, so you have to do what I say. Everybody is pretty equal, right. at least it was then, uh, to the fact that on my last operation, I had been promoted to E7 by that time, and this is the end of uh, 1970 when I went back 69 to 70. Uh, August of 1970, I did my last op. I was a, a sergeant first class. My assistant team leader was a captain. Wow. Okay. And <laughs> and then my third American was a staff sergeant. But wow. that captain did not have the experience I did. Mm. So even though, I mean, normally, I, I, I think as SEALs, I mean, they have officers that run everything. Uh, we didn't, our officers really weren't that combat. A-teams, yeah, but we didn't have that many officers that ran, ran recon. Right. Uh, and after that operation, he quit running recon and became the OIC of one of the launch teams. Yeah, okay. uh, that was enough for him. Yeah. Uh, that's the one where we, we, we all should have been killed. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we had a seven man team and we went, we were right above the Ho Chi Minh trail and we had gone in there to take a prisoner. So we went in very loud. We didn't try to sneak in. Uh, we wanted them to come up and get us. Uh, the reason was we were trying to pull a prisoner out to find out what was happening down in the valley, and it was at a choke point. Uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a trail system. A lot of people don't understand that. Uh, but it cho- a choke point right at the DMZ uh, in Laos coming out of North Vietnam. So the, somebody wanted to know what was going on there, so they sent us in to get a prisoner. So we went in obvious because we wanted a counter-recon team to come up and try to take us, but we had set up an ambush. We went in very heavily armed and and set up an ambush to try to catch them, but they didn't come up. They didn't take the bait, mm-hmm. and uh, but they caught us the next day. Uh, it took them four hours to get us out. I was wounded the initial burst. Uh, my one-two was wounded terribly. Uh, he took a round through the gut, and uh, the captain luckily didn't get really badly wounded, but it took him four hours to suppress the anti-aircraft uh, enough to get the slicks in, wow. and they estimated our seven-man team, three Americans and four mountain yards, was up against f- at least four reinforced battalions. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> how, did you, how did you guys stay alive that long? Uh Air support. Air support. Yeah. yeah. Air yeah. support. Wow. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, it was nothing going. I mean, like I say, we'd set up this ambush. It was a late in the afternoon insert. Uh, we pulled a dummy extract, is what we did, and we set up an ambush, figuring that they would do what they were supposed to do. Their, their counter recon team would come up and survey the area and find out what they could find. But nobody showed up for us to attack, you know, to have the ambush. Uh, and then afterthought, I'm pretty sure they came up, knew we were there and were shadowing us just to see what they were up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that night, you know, last light, you move out of the area and you set up what we called an RON, a remain overnight. 
so we set up there. It's it's kind of thing where you try to be where you can touch everybody, can touch everybody. Uh, it was it also we had we had something then that was a very interesting thing. It looked like a little uh, like a big golf tee mm-hmm. with an antenna on it. Yeah. And uh, you could stick that in the ground, and it was a seismic sensor. Mm. Team leader would wear an earphone, and each one had a different beep if it were disturbed. Okay. Right? So that you could set them out on your – had four of them. You could set them out on your logical points of access to where you were. And it was supposed to give you a heads up, you know, if if somebody's sneaking up on you. The problem with it was – a lot of trees and the wind would blow the trees, which would make the roots move. Yeah. And so I'm sitting this thing with this thing sticking in my ear and going beep, 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 beep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so you <laughs> don't paranoia, know. Yeah. yeah, you don't know if it's just wind in the trees or if there's somebody coming up on you. Uh, like I said, we were right above the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, when we got out of the jungle the next day. We could look down at the trail, mm-hmm. uh, which was you know, a pretty wide dirt road at that point because, like I say, it was a choke point. But that night, I'm sitting, you know, half asleep, half awake, uh, and all of a sudden, it sounds like it's coming right through next to you through the jungle, but I hear clank, 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 track vehicles. Oh. Right? And then there's the roar of engines. Roar of engines, track vehicles. Don't know what it is, but, you know, you can hear that track. And the NVA did have Russian uh, uh, tanks, yeah. uh, which they found out at Longvay when, when that was the first time they used tanks to overrun something. Uh, they ran overran a special forces tank with a special forces camp with their tanks. Mm. Uh, so anyway, uh, later on when I got back, when I was debriefed, the Air Force, which had sensors out, some interesting super secret sensors they had out, had determined it was a, uh, I think it was a 17-truck convoy with a three-tank escort. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> uh, so the next morning when, when we, you know, first daylight, uh, there was a lot of explosions mm-hmm. down. You could hear that down the trail. And we kind of figured out that it was uh, maybe engineers working because they did the arc lights, the bombing, B-52 bombing along the trail. And, of course, did nothing. They'd blow a bunch of holes in the road if they did, blow some trees down. The next day, the engineers would have all the roads filled in, the bridges built back. So we thought it was maybe engineers down there, you know, because it was these kinds of explosions you would expect from that. And uh, we decided to attack. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, So we, we moved around to an area... And we're jumping way ahead, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, we moved around to an area where we could actually see down on the trail. And uh, the idea that I came up with, you know, the only smart guy was the uh, my one-two. And I had never run with these guys before. Mm-hmm. That's also mostly our recon teams were cohesive units that had done a lot of ops and trained together. I, I, I didn't know these guys from, it was an ad hoc team, okay? Wow. So when I came up with this plan, the uh, Sergeant Cunning, uh, the third guy was called the Camo Man. He carried the radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't like the plan, but the captain went along with it. Uh, We got out to where we could see them. We got out on a point, had gone through some elephant grass, uh, and we set up a day defensive position. 
because my fact hadn't come up. The forward air controller should have been out there first light to make radio contact to make we were still make sure we were still there. Couldn't get up, couldn't get up my fact up on the radio, so we couldn't do anything until we got our fact. And uh, while we were there, and I was trying to contact the fact, we heard some noise on our back trail, mm. and it sounded like maybe somebody tripping and falling. But we had monkeys in the area. And right after that, a big, I don't even know what kind of big bird it was, some big buzzard or something came in and landed. And, of course, we were on high alert, but nothing happened. So we figured, well, it's probably an animal or something. Of course, you think very optimistically. <laughs> right. Again, now we know it was a counter-recon team. Oh, jeez. And uh, interesting enough, uh, first light, no fact, no fact, no fact. We're sitting there cooking in the sun. Uh, there was some. There was a bomb crater there and some fallen trees out on this little finger off the mountains. The way I got my support, we had uh, aircraft C-130s that circled very high, 30,000 30, feet, uh, over Laos, probably over Cambodia. Uh, they were radio ships. Mm. Right, they were radio relay ships. So if pilots went in or anything, they were, they were coordinators and stuff like that. I don't know everything they did. All I know, they were an emergency contact. Uh, called Moonbeam at night was their call sign. Hillsborough in the daytime. So I get on. I can't get my fax. So I get a, get the radio on the right frequency, whatever it is. I call Hillsborough. Uh, let them know we need a fax. Mm. They called their headquarters down in Saigon, gave them the message, which called my outfit on a landline, a regular telephone. Oh, my gosh. In Da Nang and told them they had a team that needed a fact. Oh, geez. So 10, in the, 10 o'clock in the morning, my fact gets there. Should yeah. have been their first light. Uh, talking to him on the radio, made contact finally. Now, my plan was to uh, get some fast movers there, some jets, and start having them do airstrikes in the valley. Mm. Uh, and we would be right on the edge of that kill zone, and during all the confusion, we were going to go in and grab one guy and have our slicks orbiting just out of sight and have the slicks come in and get us. <laughs> I, You know, I think back again and say, okay, young and stupid. <laughs> So anyway, I talked to the fact, give him my plan. He calls back to the C team. Those dumb bastards approved it. <laughs> Do you partially blame them for not telling you? <laughs> uh, they, they should have said, no way. Yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. Uh, of course, we didn't know how many people were in the valley. We didn't know we would be attacking four right. reinforced <laughs> battalions. Uh, we were there to get that intel. So anyway... Uh, he comes back up on the radio and lets me know the fast movers have already been scrambled out of Da Nang. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. <laughs> so I give my team, you know, thumbs up, saddle up. Sergeant Cunning, I got him because he was new and he wasn't found really, he'd been on two other teams and they didn't like him. He never did an insert, but he just wasn't fitting in. And the Sergeant Major of the recon company told me, and 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 uh, Captain Carell had never been on the ground before either. Oh my gosh! So I had two newbies. Uh, 
so Sergeant, Sergeant Cunning had just not fitted in, and Sergeant Major told me this was going to be his last chance to make it in recon. Because some guys just don't have that mentality. I mean, it's not saying anything bad against them. It just so anyway, I give the thumbs up. Sergeant Cunning, Staff Sergeant, had taken his web gear off. Oh my gosh! Okay, for those that don't know, uh, you carry a pack that has supplies that are nice to have. That's where you carry your food or anything like that. A couple of canteens of water. But it's something you can run without. If you're being chased, you can drop your pack and go. Right. Uh, the next thing you have on is your web gear, which is your, all your combat stuff, your hand grenades, your ammunition, what you need. And you never take that off unless you're running and run out of ammunition. Then you shed your web gear because all your survival equipment is in your pockets, mm-hmm. your compass and, and uh, flares. And, and we had a... a, a what they call it, uh, a, a white and orange piece of cloth. I can't remember what it was called now. Okay. Had bow saws, all this kind of crap for survival we carried in our pockets. So that, if you had to drop your web gear, then you were really light and you could keep running. He had taken his web gear off. Oh, no. <laughs> and when I gave the thumbs up to saddle up, meaning let's get ready to go, because we were going to head down that, hill it was a pretty steep rock covered hill we were going to go straight down to the trail from there and be down at the bottom when the fast movers got there he stood up saved our lives okay did the absolute worst thing he could have done saved our lives Mm. the concept of warfare is you can do everything right and lose and do everything wrong and win Mm. we did everything wrong on that operation (laughs) So he stood up, and what I saw was him take a round. He, was, uh, he wasn't looking at me. He was sideways to me. I saw his belly open up, and him hit the ground. Uh, all hell broke loose with automatic weapons and explosions. Wow. I was on the radio at the time talking to my fac, and the radio went dead. Oh, wow. I had no idea why. Uh but we carried a, a small ERC-10, URC-10 FM radio as an emergency radio. So I pulled that out of my pocket. That would have been in, in jungle fatigue pocket. I pulled that out and got my fact back up on that, told him what. And, and our, we were, our AO, our area operation was called the Prairie Fire AO, Prairie Fire. Before that, it had been Shining Brass. That was also our ultra classification, top secret prairie fire mm-hmm. uh we were so secret even con- we were secret because congress wasn't supposed to know what we were doing mm-hmm. our rules of warfare were we could not go into laos cambodia or north vietnam which was dumber in hell yeah uh so when i wrote an after action report which i did as part of my job as an intel sergeant at the launch team or back at the back at the fob it went from me to Chief Sog in Saigon to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the President. Wow. <laughs> okay. Bypassing everybody else. One of our problems was when we would find out, say, troops were massing someplace in Laos, we had no way to tell the U.S. commanders 
in Vietnam that the NVA were massing just across the border. Oh, my gosh. Because it would take so long for it to get through the chain and back to where it was. And then it was, how did you find the information? Ah. Kind of like the Enigma machine in World War II, where in World War II, they actually had to let some ships be sunk by the Germans, even though they knew because they didn't want the Germans to know we were cracking all our codes. Wow. Tough decision to very, make. Yes, very okay? tough. Okay, so so we actually, not me personally, but our guys had to figure out a way to let unit commanders, say the commander of the 4th ID, know that un- the NVA were massing on the other side. of the- We had to do that back channel to actually do- get our intel to them. Wow. Uh, so anyway, uh, I pulled out the York 10 and where I was going with it, that was our classification, top secret purifier, need to know, uh, our thing, our thing was really, really compartmentalized. We had a big S2 shop, Intel shop. The guy at this desk couldn't know what the guy at the desk next of him was doing. Wow. What I was doing wasn't general information anywhere mm. okay wow it was it was highly classified uh so that was our classification but it was also our 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 radio call word for get my ass out of here right now mm. i'm in deep shit yeah it was called a prairie fire emergency uh my memoirs if i wrote them would be called more fun than fear because mm. i had a blast in vietnam yeah uh, for some reason, I didn't know a lot of fear. I don't, I remember twice actually being, feeling a sense of fear in Vietnam. Uh, once was when I was with, with the fact doing an overflight when we found out the pilot told me because of the radio, he could tell I was wearing Air Force too. And the, the radio started with some stat, weird static on it. And he said something like, oh, shit, they got radar locked on us. And he started doing this this, this acrobatic flying. Yeah. I'd never been airsick in my life. I mean, I got like 400 parachute jumps and <laughs> did a lot of flying. Flew all over Vietnam, you know, strap hanging and stuff. First time I ever felt a feeling of nausea. Because I'm there with him in a 45 and no parachute, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I know it was thinking back that was just that tension right and the other time was at that point uh when i was on that radio <laughs> i got i got at that ua that irk 10 keyed it and it was, prairie fire prairie fire prairie fire prairie fire uh i mean it was like a panic prairie fire yeah i settled down after that but it was my first ex- i mean i'd been in trouble before but not like that yeah and uh so uh but the thing was that when when Cunning stood up, that's what triggered their counter-reek team to open up on us. Mm. And I really think it was probably a newbie on their team that shot, started the fire on us. Wow. If if Cunning had not have stood up and they had not have fired on us, we would have been moving down the hill, fairly steep grade. They could have come out and rolled rocks down on us. Wow. Anybody that knows the military knows the high ground. You're moving down a hill. You got shy. That's lone survivor crap, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so they caught us while we were in our, our day defensive position. So we, we were out on a point with nowhere to go, 
but we were fairly safe as far as to lay over Annis. So uh, I was able to tell the fact where the fire was coming from, and uh, uh, we used signal mirrors and stuff like that to uh, let them know exactly where we were. Uh, The O2s that we used, uh, Cessna 330s, I think, whatever, the twin boom with push-pull motors, one in the front, one in the back, uh, he carried seven 2.4-inch rockets under each wing, mm. or were they 275s? 2.75-inch rockets. Been a long time. <laughs> memory, <laughs> memory fades after 50 <laughs> years. Uh, so he rolled in, and he put some rocket fire right into where we were taking our fire from, which quieted them down quite a bit. Uh, but I knew the fast movers, fast movers were on the way, which, again... If we had gotten in trouble and those fast movers were still sitting back at Da Nang, that FAC had seven rockets, and then we would have been oh my dead meat. Yeah, Our fast movers were already en route when we got in trouble. So it didn't take them long to get there, thank oh. goodness. Wow. Okay, so my radio was dead, and I was using the York 10. And, uh, of course, the next, next thing after I find out that, okay— you know, he's rolling in. My left hand, I had my car 15. We didn't carry M16s. We carried a, a recon version of that, a commando version with a shorter bar- barrel, uh, a longer flash suppressor, and a collapsible stock that, that uh, fold. you know. So like our M4s now that we carry? Uh, yeah, I have no like idea that. what you guys carry now by number, <laughs> but it, it was it was a mod- the the uh, the uh Receiver group was M16. Everything was M16 on it except for those modifications. So for firing it, it was just as unreliable as an M16. (laughs) But it was a cooler weapon to carry. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Definitely sounds like our M4. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, Field tested in combat. Right. Yeah. Uh, So uh, my with my left, I had the radio in my right hand. With my left hand, car was was across my lap. I tried to pick it up, and I could put my hand on it, but I couldn't get my hand to close on it. Mm. And I, what the hell is this? So I kept, I kept reaching down and dragging my hand across the weapon. Uh, I did not know, but I'd taken shrapnel through the back of my tricep and had taken out two of the nerves going to my oh hand. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And I was bleeding rather profusely. Uh, so, uh, Captain Carell, my, my one, one, uh, we went by those designations. The team leader was a one zero assistant one, two, and then the, uh, the indige team, they were zero one, zero two, zero three. Those were our designations. So my one, one low crawled over to me and, and wrapped up my arm so I wouldn't bleed to death. Wow. Uh, now if we can jump ahead when I was in the hospital at China beach, Reason my radio went dead is because the cord was cut three inches below the handset. Oh my gosh! <laughs> while I was talking on it. Wow. Uh, the other thing was that uh, we car- the team leader, m- myself, carried a piece of gear about the size of a pack of cigarettes, a little piece of uh, uh, electronic gear, and it was on my web gear about where your breast pocket would be mm-hmm. on your chest about the size of a pack of cigarettes. And what I never got to test it, but what this was supposed to be is if I was being assaulted in trouble in jungles or cloud, I could turn that beeper on 
And uh, the AC-47s are spookies, are gunships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Spectre, right? Right, yeah. The C-1, AC-130s. Yes. Our AC-47s uh, were supposed to be able to set their guns so they could just sweep the whole area. Yeah. And I would tell that, that pilot, my team is within 10 meters of the beeper. Mm. And those guns were auto- supposed to automatically stop firing 10 meters from where that signal was coming from. Yeah. Well, they brought that, they brought the handset in to be show me. They also brought the beeper in. Apparently an AK round had gone in front of my chest and had gone through that beeper. Oh my God. As, and if you, again, if you can think of a pack of cigarettes in your pocket. That's and, close. And an That's... AK round going in. So it was kind of like I was, in a really heavy thunderstorm and didn't get wet. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, the fact that we got out of there and the, uh, the last team, a time a team had taken that target area was our team, Michigan, which was my team. They lost all three Americans. It was really a hot, bad target area. Jeez. Uh, How did you, did, was it all instinctual at that point? Or did you, do you remember thinking like, I'm probably not going to make it out of here? Uh, I remember, being hunkered down for a while yeah. until till we got better air support. Then it was all directing directing uh, airstrikes. Yeah, very busy doing that uh, on the radio. And uh, because as uh, soon as that fact shot started shooting, the whole valley lit up with anti aircraft fire. Mm. Uh, uh, Fifty one calibers, forty sevens. I mean, it was just it was like Fourth of July in the valley. Uh, so that was what we were doing even after the fast movers got there. They started actually working that area, trying to take out the anti-aircraft, which, is, which was a lot what, they, what we were. We were bait. <laughs> I mean, we would go into an area, and we were bait for both our side and their side. Wow. Uh, they wouldn't always take out a team right away. They would. They eventually mounted anti-aircraft guns on trucks so they could get into that area we were very quickly. So their idea was to keep us alive, knowing that everything would be done to get us out. So that way they could shoot down the slicks, the spads, mm, <laughs> the snakes. Yeah. And for, for the other side, if we got in trouble, there was going to be a lot of NVA around us. So then we could be used as bait. <laughs> For our side to come in and take their guys out. Sounds like a great job. <laughs> awesome job. Yeah. Join the Green Berets. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, the, we're the cheese in the trap. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there was a lot of serious recon going on. We rescued pilots, and we did a lot of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but that, I mean, that's what it was at that time. The fast movers had to take out that air support before they could get slicks in to get us. Uh, so... And we also, then eventually you had the SPADs come in there, the A1Es and A1Fs, which were old Korean war planes mm-hmm. that were propeller-driven, slower in hell, but they carried their own weight and ordnance. Yeah. Whereas the fast movers had come in, they got there in a hurry, they dropped two bombs, have to go back and rearm. So, you know, they were good, they got there in a hurry, but they, they had no station time. Mm. Those SPADs flew around forever dropping ordnance. But uh, I do remember uh, my brother Dan, 187th, the guy that kind of was my incentive to go airborne infantry, yeah. my hero as a child. 
I can remember hunkered down in that hole and 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 they say there there there's no atheist in the, in a foxhole. Yeah. Well, I'm not much of a believer, but I was sure talking to Dan. <laughs> yeah. and thinking, Man, you son of a bitch, you got me into this. Yeah. You better get me out. Yeah. It wasn't a sense of fear so much as it, it, it's a weird expression. It's a weird way of feeling because you have that confidence. You know, other teams got in trouble, uh, but there's also that resignation that that I knew I had a good chance of getting killed. I mean, I had resigned myself to getting wounded, killed, or captured. Yeah. Uh, interesting enough, I had not thought about getting disabled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exactly actually surviving and being a cripple. <laughs> okay. But, but Murphy, I, Murphy's Law of War. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was a big part of it, just that resignation. And you also have to understand that the guys that ran recon for SOG uh, had almost a hundred percent rate of wounded, captured, or killed, or MIA. Wow! Almost a hundred percent. Jeez. Uh, there were very few of us that got out whole. Wow! Absolutely powerful. And I know, I know you probably hate me for ending part one there, but in order to really honor Mike's words, we felt that this should be a two-part podcast, so that was part one. Part two will be coming to you next week, where Stahl really gets into transitioning out of the military and some of the difficulties of that transition. In the meantime, don't forget about the raffle happening right now over at thevetsproject.com backslash raffle. That's thevetsproject.com backslash raffle, where you have a chance to help the project and win a Texas Ranch Weekend Package valued at $45,000. We'll be back next week with part two of an education on Mac V. Sog from Mike Stahl. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at project underscore veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.